This is Collective Snark. I'm Adrian, <laughs> and I'm already bad at this. <laughs> I'm Michelle, and I knew my name was coming. <laughs> I'm Donna. <laughs> we'll be talking about pop culture, science fiction, fantasy, geek culture, writing, or any other topic that grabs our interest. And today we're doing our special Halloween episode. Um, we've mentioned in the past that all three of us are writers, and so today we're actually going to be reading you some of our writing. Um, I also want to mention we're recording today in my parents' house, and so I want to thank them for that, but I also want to let you know that there may be some interesting things you hear in the background, <laughs> which include a grandfather clock, uh, dogs barking, my father yelling at a football game, and a washer and dryer <laughs> chiming that they're done. I'm hoping really that there's going to be something that you couldn't possibly ever put on the list. I <laughs> <laughs> um, didn't see that coming. Well, we're just going to jump right in. The, so I'm going to turn this over to Adrian, who is going to be reading. I'm going to be reading my story called Down to Bones. And it is in the anthology Fade from A Murder of Storytellers, edited by Shannon Iwanski. I didn't know that's how you pronounced his name. We know now. Now I am suddenly not certain either. (laughs) Despite the fact that I have known both him and his husband for literally years. And was at their wedding. Uh, He never goes by his last name. Mm -mm. He's just just Shannon. He's Shannon. Exactly. At any rate. Oh, should I start now? Yeah. All right. Oh, I moved the chair. She says, I know a secret, and you believe her because she's so damn pretty that you'd believe anything she says. Even if you don't really, you'll say you do just in case it means she'll let you fuck her later. Okay, what is it? I know where the fairies live, she says. She talks kind of slow, like maybe she is slow or just on drugs, but that's alright too. It's Halloween, and her skirt is as short as her shirt is low. Her costume is minimal, maybe even half-assed, especially compared to her brother's. He stands behind her like she's a shield protecting him from the rest of the world. The hood of his sweatshirt is pulled up, but earlier, when it was down, horns visibly poked through his messy red hair. No, not red. My sister would call it burgundy. Dark, almost the color of dried blood. His eyes are silver, with no pupil. I want to ask him where he got the contacts, but the girl, Joe, so damn distracting I keep forgetting. Joe, though, she's just got wings, tiny things poking out through her jacket, not even that well made. They look a little broken and lumpy in places, bad paper mache covered in craft store feathers. That's it, not even a fluffy halo on a wire. Fairies? You look over at John, who never got the memo that you're not in middle school anymore and is wearing that stupid lab coat with Dr. Seymour butts embroidered over his heart. He smirks and you know you're going to go with her. So you say, sure, show us, but she's probably high and that should make this all easier. She holds her brother's hand like they're in grade school, but it's whatever. When she sits across from you on the train, you follow the lines of her legs with your eyes to the dark under her skirt. Around the curves in the tunnel, when everything jostles, the light finds the right angle and you see a flash of her underwear, pastel through the black sheer material of her torn stockings. By the time you're out of the metro station and walking, you're already bored of this. So you walk behind her and wish that you could just get her to let go of her brother because John's not that good of a wingman. And now that you think of it, maybe John thinks you're his wingman on this one. There wasn't really time to discuss it. She takes you through this neighborhood and it looks abandoned and you wonder why you've never known about it before. All these unbroken windows and blank walls, the streets seem to wind into each other leading to the center or almost to the center because you get stopped by a big wrought iron fence surrounding an old park. And Joe, she just opens the gates like the rotting police tape doesn't mean anything, like it isn't creepy at all. But again, it's Halloween, so it's sort of great. 
and you get to thinking that maybe Joe and her brother set this up and we're just waiting for the right kind of jackasses to come along. She leads you down the stone path, cracked and overgrown. Mother Nature's attacked the playground equipment, vines growing up the poles tangled in the crisscross plastic-coated walls and floors. The path keeps going, and she keeps going, so you keep following because that skirt looks so good on her and you think you might follow her off the proverbial bridge. Before you know it, you're surrounded by the trees. You swear it's colder, but maybe it's just the sun going down. The fading light filters through the leaves, lighting them up like stained glass, and the smell of the afternoon heat on them is just starting to fade. She stops and John stops, and you're still staring at her ass or at the trees, and you almost run into John. He elbows you in the ribs with a grin on his face that tells you he knows exactly what you are doing, even though he doesn't. She turns around and the wind catches her hair, like in slow motion. For a moment, she looks like someone on TV and you think maybe you could really like her, like for more than a night. She puts her finger to her lips and steps to the side, a ringmaster introducing the next very impressive act. At first, it's just a tree, a weeping willow, but then it dawns on you that it's not really right that you only think it's a weeping willow because it's shaped like one. Instead of being green or even orange like the other trees, it's bone white. John tilts his head and says, what's this? Joe says, you said you wanted to meet the fairies. She's not wrong, but she isn't right either. You said you wanted to meet the green fairy, like the one at the bottom of an absinthe bottle. So you laugh. That part about maybe liking her for more than a night, passing stupidity. This isn't the kind of girl you date. Her brother looks at you like he knows what you're thinking, and you think maybe he does. Better than John, at least. Listen, sister, John says, it's a cool tree, but fairies aren't real. Her brother, what's his name? Pulls his sleeves over his hands and crosses his arms. It's definitely colder, but here in the trees you can't even see the sun anymore. So it's no big deal. His breath comes out in little clouds. It looks like he wants to say something, but Joe looks back at him and shakes her head. Then, and this is crazy, but one of her wings twitches. She rolls her shoulder and stretches the tiny feathered thing out. It moves the way a newborn horse moves, uncertain and broken looking. You look at John to see if he saw what you saw. He isn't going off on some righteous rant about silly little girls that believe in fairies, and the way his eyes go big and his mouth is hanging open tells you that he did. But it's like knowing Pi to the 27th digit. What are you supposed to do with that information? Maybe nothing. Maybe you just draw your chin up off the ground and close your mouth and make yourself believe it was a trick of the light. She looks back at you, and you didn't notice until now that her blue eyes are streaked with gold. Not brown, but shiny gold. She smiles at John and shakes her head, like she knows something you don't. Go inside, she says, and pulls the branches aside like a beaded curtain. It makes a sound like one, too. John looks at you, and you look at him, and you know he's going to try to send you telepathic messages to go in first, but you figure that if he goes in, you'll get to spend a little more time with Joe. Then you realize it's silly, because it's a tree and literally the size of a phone booth in there. You'd only score a few seconds. But silly or not, it's worth it. So you grin and motion him in. He looks inside. It's dark in there, darker than it should be. The sky is turning twilight behind you and still a little orange ahead. It must be the shadows, silhouetting the tree and turning it mysterious. The weird in-between time when everything is electric blue and both brighter and darker than it should be. John ducks inside. The shadows in there, they swallow him. He's there, and then he's not, and you can't even hear his feet on the dead grass. You look to Joe, and she's still smiling. Her brother watches, eyebrows up, chewing on his lip. Then, like he just can't, he shakes his head and turns back down the path. And damn it, you still can't remember his name, because when she said it, you were too busy watching the shapes her mouth made. Now, for no reason that makes sense to your rational mind, you want to follow him. 
Maybe because it shouldn't take John this long to explore under a weeping willow. Partly because you just realized how absolutely quiet this place is. Mostly because the shape Joe's mouth is making now looks hungry and sharp. So you say, hey, and let the rest hang unsaid and hope he turns around. He doesn't. He looks over his shoulder at you and you know with the pit of your stomach feeling that if you could just pull his goddamn name out of whatever trash bin corner of your brain you threw it in, he'd stop and help you. You take a step toward him to follow him back to safety, but she's suddenly touching your arm. Her hand feels hard and cold like diamonds or packed snow. Packed tight, like that time John gave you a bloody nose with a snowball he'd been working on for the entire walk home from school. When you look at her again, which takes you longer than you'd like to admit because a voice in that paranoid, primordial part of your brain is telling you not to, she's shimmering. You're thinking about diamonds and snow as her skin gives off flashes of orange and red in the setting sun. It's your turn. She slides her icy hand down your arm and tangles her fingers in yours. Backing up, keeping eye contact with you, she pulls you to the open mouth of the tree. You can see that's what it is now. You didn't see it at first because it's sideways, but now you can see how the leaves, which aren't really shaped right for a willow at all, jut out to the sides. The ivory color should have given it away, but you were distracted. The leaves, which aren't leaves but teeth, part for you. You try to tell your feet to stop, but they don't. You try to pull your hand free, but you can't. You try to look away from her, but you're all caught up in those lightning blue eyes and she's so damn pretty. It isn't hard because the reasonable side of you says it's just a tree and she's just a girl. And your ego wants to believe that she wants you as much as you want her and that John for once just decided to be a decent wingman and went out the other side of the tree and signaled to her brother and now they're going off to get high and leave you alone with Joe. And everything you know about the world tells you there's no way it feels so moist and warm under the tendrils of the branches. She still has your hand. She's going to come in after you. She's going to. She's going to. She's letting go. She lets go of your hand and smiles and look at all of those sharp teeth, crooked and veined, like the leaves not leaves hanging all around you. She steps back and the branches fall back into place, casting you in darkness. The air is so hot and thick that you feel like you're drowning. And as something begins to grind you down to nothing and your nose fills with the stench of your own blood, you wish that you were drowning. Creepy. I uh, I gotta tell you, I hate hate present tense second second person. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, no. Until it's something of yours, <laughs> I'm always amazed by how I read something of yours and I go, oh my god. Oh, hey, this is good. <laughs> I have had people, like, I, I have unfollowed people on Twitter that, like, as soon as I see something's written in, in present tense, I stop reading it. I'm Ooh. like, well, screw you. Because most of the stuff I write is in present tense, and I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, I read a lot of a lot of horror stories, and there was this one, and I think it was Bruce Colville's, Colville's um, Book of Monsters, mm-hmm. and he would have these little blurbs ahead of each story. And one of the stories was told in first-person present tense. And he talked about the different tenses in it. And one of the things that he said was, when, you're, when you read a story that's in first-person and past tense, you know that the character gets through it mm. because they're telling you what happened. Mm-hmm. When you read it and it's in present tense, you don't know because it's happening to mm. them as they're telling it to you. And I think I just really like latched onto that and hooked onto that because yeah. I know I write a lot of stuff in yeah. present tense. Well, you do it well. Thank you. And just because I couldn't help but go into critique mode, <laughs> as a, <laughs> I really loved that bit about her skirt was as short as her shirt was low. 
That was really nice. That just Thank really you. gave you an image right there of who she was and what she looked like. That was weirdly mm. difficult to read out loud. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, no, I can understand how it would be. <laughs> Good stuff. All right, Michelle, do you have? I have something. I am reading The Drowning Man, which is out of the Dark and Dangerous Things one anthology. And um, I'm just going to start it and we can talk about it after if you want. Sure. I wake up soaked and covered in seaweed. The icy air prods my starved, chilled limbs as though the winter goddess had dragged me into her lair to ply me with her killing wiles. Weighed down by freezing darkness, I choke, then roll onto my side and cough out water. O oh, gods of earth and sea, I must have drowned again. A man is not meant to endure such madness. Exhausted, I lay shuddering and naked on the shore. My eyelashes gritty with sand, lips tinged with the sharp bite of salt. I curl up to warm myself, like the babe born to my wife and me not long ago. The memory of his newborn fingers rounded into baby fists is like fire in my heart. It sends heat through my limbs, stokes my anger. And while the last thing I desire is to return to the smothering water, as soon as my strength returns, that is exactly what I will do. Again and again, I have no choice. I must save my infant son, who lies cradled in a witch's embrace deep within the heart of the sea. He is not dead, no, that would be a kindness, for the watery grave is no place for a living child to dwell. The sea's embrace is cold, dark, and crushing. No warmth, no mother's love, no father's strength, only emptiness and a terrifying silence. Who will tell my boy he is loved? if I do not find him, if I do not tear him from the ocean's depths and carry him to the sandy shore where men can surround him with strong, comforting arms and speak hope into his frail soul. I cannot abandon him. Ignoring the slow ache in my muscles, I push myself to my knees, my soaked hair tangled over my eyes as though to keep me blind. To my left, waves crash violent and screeching, water thinning and reaching toward me but stopping on the sand several hand spans away. The wind shrieks through the reeds. The sea witch is chanting, trying to frighten me back to my hut. The thought of the small thatched roof, the reed-covered floorboards, draws my eyes to my right, past the boundary wall, where my home sits darkened and slowly falling into disrepair. I swear I smell the rich brown gravy of a lamb stew, spiced with treasured herbs, fresh. Uh, fresh from the market day pickings. The savor of it rises on my tongue, taunting me. My wife had cooked like no one else I knew, so gifted, so lovely, taken, me, taken from me so very young. Rubbing away tears, I turn my gaze back to the raging sea where the hateful witch abides. A cruel creature, she has no heart, no soul, no wisp of human kindness. No wonder my wife, also born of the sea, but bright and full of life as the midday sun fled to the shore, to me. As I stare at the waves, I imagine my wife's body floating upon them the day I gave her to the sea for burial. The memories wrap around me like seaweed and draw me down. My beautiful Ella, I promised I'd protect her, but I could not stanch her bleeding the day uh, that terrible day. There was so much blood, too much. 
As my Ella's life ebbed, my son wailed as newborns do, lusting toward the light of day. He belonged to the shore, to the sun, to me. And then the sea witch came to my door. Somehow she knew her daughter was dead. After the witch lifted the babe from my dead wife's cold arms, she pointed a shell-covered finger at me, her eyes alight with a watery green glint. Be cursed, she said, to live without love. A wispy red cloud arose in the room like the sky that sailors see when a storm is brewing. Right outside my hut's door, lightning flashed and cracked. Blinded, I fell to my knees, hands covering my face. My ears pounded from the echoes of the thunderbolt. When I could finally see and hear again, my son was gone. The witch had swept him from the hut like the waves sweep back into the sea and fled to where I could not find her. I did not even have time to name him. Maddened by what had happened, I ran outside and screamed into the twilight, praying that the witch would hear me and understand. I never stole your daughter. She came to me, I shouted, fists curled as if I couldn't, as if I could fight nature to gain a second chance at everything. She came to me and I loved her. My words dissipated like dying clouds in the shadowy night air, like hope dying. My heart crumbled within me. Frantic, I cried out again. I would have died for your daughter, would have bled in her place if it might have saved her. I broke down, broke down into bitter tears. You cursed me, but it's too late. She's gone, I'm cursed already. For days, I waited upon the shore for a response, for a word of forgiveness, for hope. It never came. And so I am thrice cursed. I have no son, I have no wife, I have no future. Yet I rise as I've done so many times before. I have stopped counting the efforts. The sea waits for me, calling to me, speaking in my dead wife's voice. I am fond of the shore, Ella whispers in my memory. It is warmer than the sea and my mother's arms. My son now lies clutched in those arms. He needs warmth more desperately than the daughter of a sea witch ever could. I stumble to the water's edge. As I step in, the waves envelop my limbs, welcoming, welcoming me like an old lover. I walk until I'm up to my neck. After one last glance at the shore, at my hut, at the sky's night face with its stars glinting like watchfires, I plunge beneath the surface. Wincing against the cold, I swim down, down, deeper and darker with every stroke and kick. Maybe this time I will rescue my son before I am drowned and cast back onto the shore again. I think of Ella and pray for her memory to give me strength. And I plunge deeper, hoping. Oh. <laughs> I know, it's a sad story. <laughs> oh well. And there was another one in present tense. I know, I, I thought about say, that. Speaking of. <laughs> I thought about that as soon as we started reading, and I was like, hmm. <laughs> I can't say why I did it in present tense, except mm -hmm. that it, it feels like it's a, for me, it's a present tense story because it's happening over and over. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. in a cycle that doesn't end, you know. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I really hope you're enjoying our Halloween special with our stories that we're reading for you. Uh, we were kind of excited to do it because we are writers, and writers like to share their work. Uh, we're going to take a break. I'm going to read mine after we come back. Here is Michelle talking about the Writing Well Creative Workshop. We're doing a Writing Well Creative Writing Workshop in Tulsa on November 12th. 
we will be, everybody on the podcast here today, Donna, Michelle, and Adrian, we're all speaking that that. Um, we've got some other local writers. Uh, some of them are nationally claimed local writers. We've got um, Sasha Martin, who's uh, the blogger at Global Table Adventures, and she also wrote a memoir that was published by National Geographic called Life from Scratch. We've got Ayla Shamil, who is the editor-in-chief of the literary journal Nimrod at the University of Tulsa. And we've got Gordon Grice, uh, who's a nationally published um, nature writer, who'll be speaking, he'll be joining us by Skype because he can't make it to Tulsa on that particular day, but it should be fun. We're going to do lots of interactive activities. He's the dangerous creatures one, right? Yes. I really hope I get to see his. Yes, we're we're going to do our best to make sure that all our speakers get to participate in the sessions as much as possible also. But it's going to be fun. It's going to be a small crowd so that you can have uh, some interaction with the speakers more intimately. We're going to do some NaNoWriMo writing sprints and a whole bunch of other stuff. And we've got some good tchotchkes and whatever. Also, it's at the Oxley Nature Center, which looks gorgeous. Yeah, so we're going to try to do some outside uh, walking and activities to spur your writing, all to get you feeling creative and artistic. And based on the weather, it'll be totally warm enough to walk outside. Uh, We're we're going to make this work for us. We're going to wear our sweaters and boots. Um, So if you're interested, uh, check us out online. We are writingwellworkshop.com. On Facebook, you can find us Writing Well Creative Writing Workshop 2016. Thank you to Spinning Recaba from Collective Snark for use of the track Urban Metronica, the Woo Ya Mix. You can find our books on Amazon as well as other retailers, but Amazon's probably the easiest. You can also find our full names properly spelled in the show notes uh, as well as links to our books. Uh, we also have the brand new Collective Snark Twitter account. That's Collective Snark, one word. And the Collective Snark WordPress blog, which is collectivesnark.com. Uh, to start with, it's probably just going to be links to our podcast, but hopefully Adrian, Michelle, and I will be inspired to blog a little bit about some of the topics we've discussed and that sort of thing. Uh, Anyway, I'm going to throw back to the recording and thank everyone again for listening. Well, my story is called Perchance to Dream, and it is out of the same anthology, Dark and Dangerous Things, that Michelle read from. And uh, I'm just going to read. Oh my gosh, it's present tense too. (laughs) (laughs) It is present tense day here on the podcast. Okay. I wake, the fog of sleep falling away in a moment, as it does when one is startled from slumber. I sit up, confused and nervous. The room is dim, lit only by the moon, leeching away the color and painting everything silver. I look to my left, to the window, but the sheer curtains cover it, and I can see nothing outside but a splash of headlights from a car on the street below. To my right is my enormous mirror in its gilded frame. I see my reflection, disheveled from tossing and turning, the white of my nightgown cutting through the darkness. In the mirror, my reflection stares back at me. Her gaze meets mine. She is as confused and startled as I. As we look at each other, the shadows behind her begin to move and a pair of bright, malevolent eyes open, looking not at her, but right at me. I scream and leap from bed, whirling about to face the intruder, but there's no one there. 
I turn back to the mirror, and am surprised to find my reflection is still sitting up in bed, regarding me with a cocked head and wide eyes. The shadow has crept closer to her. I point, screaming a warning, but my reflection only frowns at me as the shadow lifts a long-fingered, clawed hand. There is something wrong with that hand, I notice. Not only does it have too many fingers, but each of the fingers has too many joints. I scream again as the shadow grabs my reflection by the hair and drags her backward off the bed. Her feet kick frantically as she vanishes from sight. There is no sound, but surely she must be screaming with fright. No, no, I scream and run to the mirror. I smack my palms against the smooth surface, leaving prints on the otherwise pristine glass. The shadow raises its head above the edge of the bed and once again looks right at me with its bright eyes. There is nothing to the shadow but darkness, an absence of light. If it has form, if it has bulk, it is hidden in the shifting and moving darkness surrounding it. From the black depths, its eyes shine at me. It smiles, and only then can I see the thin lips stretching wide and then wider across its absent face, thin lips parting to reveal teeth like a shark's, repeating endlessly back into the dark cavern of its mouth. I step back from the mirror, my heart racing. The shadow is moving, dragging my reflection behind it, across the floor and out the door. She is still and quiet, but for the movement of her chest as she breathes. A thin trail of blood is left by her dragging heels, parallel lines, slick and moist, a dark, greasy gray in the colorless light. I stare at the reflection of the room, identical in every way to the room in which I stand, but for the lines of blood and my presence. I race out into the hallway, but she is not there. Of course she's not. She's my reflection, and there is no mirror here. There is, however, a large white rabbit with pink eyes. He plucks a watch from the pocket of his fine silk waistcoat and declares, Oh dear, oh dear, I shall be too late, before he vanishes down a rabbit hole, which I have never before noticed there in my hallway. I'm dreaming, I whisper, but it is more hope than conviction that makes me say it. I hurry into the guest room, where there is an antique vanity with a large oval mirror. There on the coverlet is Duke, the German shepherd who was my dearest friend when I was ten. He's been dead for fifteen years, but still he wags his tail at me, and has the grace to look embarrassed about being on the bed. He knows better. I waste no time on Duke, though I loved him dearly. Within the mirror, I see the shadow. It's as if it had paused there in the doorway to be sure I could see it. My reflection is beginning to wake, making small twitches and jerks, and her eyes are fluttering. However, the shadow pays no attention to her. It stares at me instead, its grin growing wider and wider until its face must split in two. Then my reflection wakes, sitting up and opening her mouth in a wide and terrified scream, though I hear nothing. The shadow tangles its fingers in her hair once again and drags her kicking and fighting from sight. Duke gazes at me with his worried face, but then he tucks his nose under his tail and curls himself into a tighter and tighter ball until he disappears. I hurry back out into the hall, where I'm greeted by Poseidon, the god of the sea. He sits astride a dolphin who is swimming with perfect contentment above the long, darkly patterned hall runner. He's going to kill her, you know, Poseidon says, stroking his long beard. And eat her liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti, the dolphin adds. I'm having a dream, I say, but they swim away down the hall and vanish into my bedroom without a further response. I have no time to worry about whether the wet spot on the runner is seawater or dolphin pee. I hurry to the bathroom with its plethora of mirrors. The shadow holds my reflection down with one hand, waiting for me. When we make eye contact, it gives me a little finger wave. With all those joints and all those fingers, it is a ghastly sight, like a spindly leg spider waving all its legs in the air. I have no time to wonder at it, though, as it moves too fast to see and rakes its claws down my reflection's chest and belly, 
Blood begins to flow from the wounds, and then a horde of butterflies swarm in through the window and begin to flit about the room. Only they're not truly butterflies. They're tarantulas with colorful butterfly wings. Only they're not really tarantulas either, I notice, when one turns to look at me with its eight very human eyes. It flits up and down, back and forth, regarding me with great seriousness. Then it opens its mouth to reveal teeth like a tiger's before it zips over to my reflection, now completely hidden behind the colorful wings. Nine white cats slink into view as well and crouch around the periphery, happily lapping up the spreading pool of blood. That can't be good for them, the Queen of Hearts offers from where she lounges in my bathtub, which is filled with bubbles and rose petals. The spider flies lift into the air and begin to circle the room in a rainbow display of bright colors. The blood is completely gone. In fact, my reflection is completely gone. The spider flies have her. Her fingers reach out through the mass of wings. Her feet kick faintly, seeking the floor below. The shadow cocks its head and smirks at me as the horde of spider flies flit out the door and down the hall, burdened by my reflection. The cats march out after them in a long line, and the shadow follows, his eyes never leaving mine until he is out of sight of the mirror. Oh God, I whisper, this must be a dream. Please, let it be a dream. From the bath behind me, I hear, we're all mad here, and why is a raven like a writing desk? But I pay the voices no attention as I hurry from the bathroom. Twin little blonde girls stand in my way, staring at me balefully. They are holding hands and wearing matching pale blue dresses with knee socks and Mary Janes. Leave me alone! They vanish in a puff of blue smoke as I rush past them. I hurry down the stairs, my bare feet making next to no sound on the carpet. I pause near the bottom, having mirror... I pause near the bottom. I have mirrors in every room of my house. I've always loved them, the way they brighten a room, make it seem bigger. The shadow could be anywhere, but I think I know where I'll find it. The staircase opens into the living room, where a rectangular mirror rests above the hearth. Several of the spider-flies flit about within that mirror, but I do not see the shadow, nor my reflection. I pace past my office, where the oval stand mirror with mahogany frame holds court, and the kitchen, where the mirror with beveled edges is mounted on the, on the pantry door. The downstairs bathroom has a mirror on the door and above the sink. I look into none of them. Duke appears before me, blocking the way into the dining room. It's going to kill her, you know, he says with a surprisingly suave English accent. He waves his tail at me, but his brown eyes are sad. I know, I say. Duke swirls about and is replaced by the white rabbit. You're late! You're late! He squeaks urgently and vanishes into the rabbit hole at his feet. I try to wake up. I pinch myself, even smack myself in the face. Poseidon watches me with a quizzical expression, but I can't wake myself up. I even scream out loud, wake up, wake up, wake up now, to no avail. Poseidon shrugs at me, and his dolphin swims away. I peer into the dining room, and am unsurprised to see the shadow there in the mirror. The far wall of the rectangular room is entirely mirrored tile. It makes the room seem so big and bright. I've always loved it, but tonight, on this night, the image in the mirror makes me scream into hands cupped over my mouth. The spider flies lower my writhing reflection to the dining table. Her white nightgown is torn and stained with blood. Her thrashing legs knock the enormous candelabra to the floor. As the shadow meets my eyes and smiles, the cats trot into the room. One by one, they drape across my reflection's ankles, her wrists. One lies on her hips, her belly, her chest. Once again, her eyes find mine, and I see her lips forming words I can't make out. But then one of the cats curls up in her hair, and the ninth one flops down over her eyes. She's held helpless by them, unable to move. 
The shadow, never taking its eyes from me, circles the table, ignoring my reflections, screams, and struggles. She's so very frightened, but I can't help her. The shadow's long-fingered hands hover over my reflection's body, wiggling like spider legs. With exaggerated gentleness, it lifts her gown and splits it from hem to neck, laying it open so her body is exposed. With one claw extended, it traces a line, a line that fills with blood, right along the base of her ribcage on the right side of her body, right over her liver. Its shining eyes glint at me. It knows it's one. One spidering hand trails across my reflection skin while wiggling the fingers of the other hand at me in a mocking finger wave. Its triumph is complete. I shake my head. No. I know I'm dreaming. It's my dream and I will take control. I know how to beat it, how to kill it. It lives inside the mirror. No, I scream. I dart forward, snatch the camera delabra from where it rests on the floor, and charge at the mirror. The shadow lifts its hands to guard its face. The cats scatter away from my reflection. No, no, no. I smash the candelabra into the glass. The mirror shatters with a deafening crash, but the shadow shatters as well. He falls into pieces on the carpet below. My reflection sits up. Tears run down her face, and she points towards me. Her lips move. I wake, the fog of sleep falling away in a moment, as it does when one is startled awake. I sit up, confused and nervous. The room is dim, lit only by the moon leaching away the color and painting everything silver. I look to the left, to the window, and into the enormous mirror on my right. I'm startled to notice it is marred by a pair of handprints. I see my reflection, disheveled from tossing and turning, the white of my nightgown cutting through the darkness. Her eyes flick behind me suddenly, and she leaps from the bed, her head casting about before she looks back at me, pointing, her mouth opening in a scream. Then I feel the long fingers tangling into my hair. Spooky. <laughs> Having had cats lay on me, I know how much that traps you. <laughs> You're just helpless. <laughs> you can't do anything. So I actually had, that was based vaguely on a dream I had, um, and I didn't convey it perfectly because in the dream it was actually Aquaman. And that being a trademarked character, I didn't feel like I could use Aquaman. <laughs> so I traded out Aquaman for Poseidon. I like Poseidon. I think that works. <laughs> I'm just going to picture uh, Cal Drogo as Aquaman. Oh, yeah. yeah. I know he has a name. I can't think of it. <laughs> Jason Momoa. That's it. Mm. Whew. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we need to do our happy thing, our happy place, our happy thought. Uh, Adrian, what have you got for us? Westworld. Oh, I heard that was good. It's so good. I've got the first episode recorded. I haven't watched it. It's so good. Yeah? It's so, so good. Like, I, I, I can't even say anything about it because I don't want to spoil anything, <laughs> but like, it's so good. And I love Evan Rachel Wood. She's so awesome all the time. Okay, well, I will definitely watch it then. Um, I'm going to go with my dear dog, Sammy, since we're here at my house, and my dear beloved Sammy is here with me. I almost went with Sammy. Yeah, he Sammy's a, pretty happy. He's a happy place, for sure. <laughs> uh, I think my happy place this week will be um, the Netflix series Jonathan Strange and Mr. Morell, which is um, Mr. Norell, sorry. It's uh, based on a book, which I've heard good things about. And I have not read the book, but man, the, the series has been really entertaining so far. It's about magic back and, you know, bringing magic back to the UK. And mm -hmm. but it's, it's like Downton Abbey with magic. That sounds awesome. And um, yeah, lots of political intrigue too. So it's really good. All right. Fantastic. Well then, happy Halloween to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Trick or treat. Trick right. or treat. <laughs>